1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Lennox Honeychurch, the author of In the Forests of Freedom, The Fighting Maroons of Dominica, published this year by University Press of Mississippi. Maroons have fascinating histories, perhaps none more than the Maroons of Dominica. Since the island itself was never a major producer of sugar and importer of slaves, its trajectory was very different from other Caribbean islands. You can't understand any of this without understanding the role and importance of maroons. I'm really pleased
2: to share this conversation with you.
1: Welcome, Lennox, and thank you so much for talking to me today.
2: Great. Great to be with you and uh, making contact on this uh, interesting subject here, the book, Forest in the Forest of Freedom, and uh, related to
1: the fighting maroons of Dominica. Let's start um, just with a very simple question.
2: Why and how did you decide to write this book? Well, I had been studying the history of Dominica for some time, since 1975. I had published a book, The Dominica Story, Uh, which is still in in print, published by Macmillan publishers in the United Kingdom. Uh, And I had done this overview of the island's history. Dominica, uh, one of the most mountainous islands in the Eastern Caribbean, not to be confused with the Dominican Republic, which is in the greater Antilles. And uh, I had written this uh, general history of the island, which included... The information, first time published really, on the enslaved Africans on the island who had escaped from the coastal plantations into the interior, and the camps that they set up, and their resistance to the British colonial powers. And I felt that um, it needed that particular subject, which in the general history covered only a couple chapters, needed to be studied in total as one unit, as a a separate book. And there was another reason, is that in Caribbean history, the story of resistance of the Maroons is particularly focused on Jamaica. And I wanted to show that this resistance and the whole question of maroonage of escaped slaves living in the forest in the interior of these islands was not limited to Jamaica or even to, to Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, that it, it did exist in some of the smaller mountainous islands, particularly those uh, in the Eastern Caribbean. So...
1: Um... Can we talk about sources? This is a really difficult uh, group of people to study and to write about, but the book is full of so many vivid stories. What what were your sources? How did you find those stories? Well, in subjects like
2: this, as in the story of the indigenous people, it's always extremely difficult because one side of the, of the saga uh, has very little uh, written information. There is very little record from the voice, from the experience of those of the oppressed. So any researcher who is doing this essentially is operating from archival material both on the island and from the colonial power. In this case, mostly the British. And there is a mass of documentation, uh, mainly correspondence from British governors to the Colonial Office to the Board of Trade in London, and these are lodged in mostly in the National Archives at Kew in London. Uh, so you've got that information, but that information is really coming from the powers that be. And, and, and to try to, to find um, other information related to, to the people themselves in the field, uh, it gets very complex. You have in a way to read between the lines of the official report. Another area um, where you can get a bit of a voice is in the court records. Because when the, the trials were held, you essentially had a, a report, a record, a questioning of these uh, people who had been captured. And you were able to get somewhat of a voice. You also, of course, have the record of dates of various attacks and um, uh, assaults on the plantations and that kind of thing, um, and that that basically is what one has to do. One has to sort of shift between the official documentation, the official reports, and try to tease out um, some information coming from the forest. The other thing that is key is doing um, a lot of anthropological work, historical anthropology, knowledge of what were the natural materials that they we were living on and with. Um, and this comes from uh, present information that has been handed down about the uh, location of sites, the uh, type of, of vegetation, the terrain, that forms a very important part of the, of the information. So you're putting together the, the documented records, you're putting together court records where the individuals themselves are answering, uh, and then you're dealing with the vegetation, topography, and the oral history of the sites and locations on the island. It's, it's a patchwork, but uh, multidisciplinary, you've got to piece it all together.
1: So you mentioned the terrain, and I was really interested um, by everything that you said in, it, in, the, in the book, and in particular, the fact that it was only with aerial photographs in the 1950s that there were actually images of the interior, but obviously the Maroons knew those interiors very well. So, um, can you talk a little bit more about the terrain of the island and why it was so important to the story?
2: Yes, we could do so. It's um, the Dominica and the islands of the Lesser Antilles. Dominica is sort of in the center of the Lesser Antilles. The Lesser Antilles are the group of volcanic islands that run from Saba, Dutch island in the north, and then all the way down to Grenada near Trinidad in the south. These sit on the edge of the Caribbean tectonic plate, and they are subject to earthquakes, but also um, in history, they are are the center of some of the largest volcanic activity um, over the centuries. So these islands are extremely mountainous, particularly those that are still called the Windward Islands, and those would include uh, Dominica, and going south, Martinique, the French island, which had a major eruption in 1902. And then St. Lucia, uh, St. Vincent, where they were active uh, center for what were called the Black Caribs, the Garifuna, um, the mix between the indigenous people and the escaped slaves once again. And also in Grenada. Uh, central mountainous zone where there were escaped slaves and quite a lot of activity in the 18th and early 19th centuries. So, the topography of all these islands is is really very mountainous, but Dominica being in the center of the zone uh, is even more so. There is a, a saying uh, and a, a, a story that has been making the rounds for a couple of centuries that when Christopher Columbus was asked to describe Dominica, which he cited on his second voyage, uh, by uh, asked to describe it by the monarchs of Spain, he crumpled a piece of parchment and put it on the table and said, this is Dominica, because it is very tortuous, very difficult. And um, it was, uh, because of the terrain, it provided a retreat for the indigenous Kalinago people that have traditionally been called the Karin people. It provided a retreat for those persons who were being swept off the flatter lands to the north and south. And the topography, the, high, the island is roughly just under 300 square miles. It has nine live volcanic centers. It, it, you have the highest concentration Of live volcanoes anywhere on Earth within within that small zone, and um, the highest peak is just under 5,000 feet, it's 4,747 feet. And you've got this backbone of of mountains averaging 4 to 3,000 feet, rising very steeply up from the coast. So you can just get an idea of, of the actual terrain but added to this, on top of this volcanic terrain, there emerged um, a, a distinct island rainforest vegetation. And um, because the island sticks up higher than many of the others, the northeast trade winds that come across the Atlantic with their moisture-laden clouds rises over the island and the precipitation is very great, lots of rain, an average of 250 to 300 inches of rain in the center of the island annually. So you've got very thick forests, which then cover this uh, terrain of mountains and the ridges and valleys. Um and up to today, they say there are 365 rivers and streams. Um, maybe they're not That many, but it gives you um, an idea of of the fact that there are waterfalls, dozens of waterfalls, rivers, etc. So it was this environment which allowed the maroons to uh, hide and to remain active. If Dominica had been one of the flat coral islands to the north, like Antigua Barbuda or St. Martin, Uh, you just would not have been able to have that kind of marinage because those islands were entirely cultivated. They were swept from the early um, part of the 18th century. Uh, They were denuded and covered in sugar cane. But in Dominica, you could really only limit the plantations to the coast and maybe two miles inland from the coast.
1: So is that uh, also the reason for the more predominant presence of the Kalinago on this island? Because it was less um, sort of colonized and and cultivated with sugar plantations than the the other
2: islands? Exactly. And this this is why it created this sort of um, foundation, uh, a footstep for the later arrival of African maroons. So uh, essentially what, what happened by the, by the middle of the 17th century is that um, the British, the French, and Dutch were taking over all of the flatter islands. The Kalinago people were retreating from those islands um, uh, where they were not massacred, but retreating to Dominica and to St. Vincent. St. Vincent is smaller than Dominica, but it is also extremely rugged. So essentially, St. Vincent and Dominica became the last natural refuge for these Kalinago people. And as during the 17th century, there was, you know, in the works of people like St. Jacques Rousseau and others, a concern in a way for the noble savage and the preservation of the last of the indigenous people, the French and the English got together and they signed a treaty with the Kalinago of St. Vincent and Dominica. And um, this was in 1660, uh, that these two islands would be left to the Kalinago people in perpetuity. Um, and, and that really lasted roughly about 100 years. Because by the 1760s, the British were coming in uh, with their uh, colonial forces, the price of sugar was going up, and essentially, both the British and the French felt that these islands could not just remain for a few hundred indigenous people, that they should be taken over and colonized uh, fully, and sugar and coffee where possible to be grown. But what it did is it provided the Kalinago people with a refuge for at least um, 100 years between the time the Treaty of and Christopher was signed in 1660. To the time in 16, sorry, 1763, the Treaty of Paris gave Dominica and St. Vincent
1: to the British. So I want to talk about the British um, in just a minute. But but the Maroons arrived bef- during that period as well, right? They they were fleeing other islands.
2: They uh, the who arrived the.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering really? how, how the Maroons arrived in the first place.
2: Ah, yes, yes. So what, what, what was happening, I didn't quite catch that, but now I do. Uh, what was happening essentially was that the um, other islands were being colonized much earlier. So in the Eastern Caribbean, in 1625, you get the English uh, first foothold in St. Christopher, now known as St. Kitts and they established themselves there and began cotton uh, production and tobacco with indentured laborers from England and, and Ireland and Scotland. And very soon afterwards, in the 16th, 14th, 15th, with the rise of sugar, the demand for much more labor intensified, and they found that labor in West Africa. So from the... 1630s into 1640s, we found the rise of the African presence in the islands. And uh, those sort fluttered of smaller islands, as they began to get more occupied and the plantations opened up and the African numbers increased, the Africans uh, followed the Kalinago people who were still attacking the new European settlement. You see, The Kalinago um, resource base was not limited to one island alone. You had resources in the coral reefs of other islands in the mangrove swamps and so. And they saw this move for colonization and plantation expansion as a threat to their very lives. And they would extend themselves from Dominica, using Dominica as a base, and go up and attack uh, French settlements in Guadeloupe and neighboring Islands also attacked, attacked Antigua to try to forestall this arrival. And they met up with Af- enslaved Africans. And the enslaved Africans came with them when they uh, left after initial attacks, realized that here was some form of refuge from the other islands. And the, the numbers slowly and surely increased so that Dominica and Saint Vincent, but mainly since we're talking about Dominica, I will focus on that. What happened is that the numbers of African refugees, if you want, increased um, gradually because they knew that this was a place of freedom. It was um, a citadel in the midst of all these other to hold an
1: island. So what you're doing here is so interesting. You're telling a story, not just of the Maroons, but of the whole period of a colonization um, with the, the British and the French and the Kalinago and the uh, enslaved African people. That is much more complicated than the ones that we usually sort of get in the in the textbooks or even yeah. on the islands where the where the colonization was... You know, much more devastating and, and initially, but this is a much more complex story.
2: Yes, usually it is simplified um, that, okay, you had your indigenous people, uh, Columbus arrived, uh, he made known that these islands existed. And then you had, by the early um, 17th century, the arrival of um, English, French, and Dutch coming in to compete with the Spanish control um, and claims of those islands, and essentially, the story just then jumps from there to the European colonization and the importation of Africans, with maybe a passing mention of the indigenous um, native Caribbean, Kalinago people uh, being uh, reduced in one way or another. And and it just zooms right up into the colonization and the whole story of sugar production and in some cases coffee, but then generally the whole sugar plantation story. And that's another uh, reason that I said, you know, we, we need to, to tell this other thing, this slower and more contested um, advance into the islands, um, And it wasn't such a simple operation, particularly in places like Dominica.
1: So the other difference also is that the British slavery, when it it did arrive, uh, the British colonization, um, was much shorter in Dominica than it was in other places. Nonetheless, you do make the argument that even though it was short, it was very intense, and there were a lot of um, implications for maroon life.
2: Yes, yes, because you see, when we think of um, the kids, Uh, beginning with colonization in 1625, slavery from Africa intensifying from the 1640s. Or if you jump to Barbados, you have a case too, 1627, the Barbadians' colonization begins. They begin with 10 Africans that they have caught along the way across the Atlantic. And um, as sugar expands, and it will expand like a bomb, that blast in Barbados as soon as the sugar and the technology and everything arrived in Barbados in the 1640s. They just boomed. The entire landscape was muted and sugar was planted. Barbados was sort of the core, then shifted across to Jamaica and the other British Islands. But here you have Dominica holding back, holding back because of its terrain, because of the presence of the indigenous people holding back for another 100 years. But when the British decided to take the island and got it uh, ceded to them by the Treaty of Paris in 1763, the whole plantation system and all the regulations and laws and control related to it was really well established elsewhere. Barbados, Jamaica, the Leeward Islands, and Cedars and Tix. It was in full force. So essentially what happened in 1763 when the British took over Dominica is they just transposed an already established system. They didn't have to go through the process of um, trial and error that they did in the others. They had a complete uh, ready-made system of government, of enslavement, of laws, of legislation to put into place. But the fact was that this is 1763, the plantations really didn't get going um, after a few years, so we're talking about the end of the 1760s. And then you have a few years later, about six years later, you then have the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, which in Dominica, the last slave ship to arrive, comes in January of um, 18. Uh, 1808. And uh, so you've got this very short period of arrival, that is um, uh, roughly, as I said, 30, 30 years, 35 30 years. And then by, by um, in, in the British case, by the 1830s, and finally, fully, in 1838, you have the abolition of slavery. So it's in essence, in Dominica, you had only about 70 years of systematic enslavement. And, and, and there you had tenuous hold of plantations because uh, the terrain was, and rainfall was really not conducive to efficient sugar production. But um, in spite of that, a full-fledged sugar plantation economy and society was established but it was much shorter than the others. And very soon after emancipation, the whole system collapsed. And that is why the Haitian historian John Casini, in a study which he did of Dominica in 1984, he says that Dominica exhibits um, the presence of a maroon society rather than a plantation society because it is um, less less regimented, less ordered. Um, the, the systems of, um, of colour and control are not as tight and long-lasting as they are in the other sugar islands.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, it, it's very clear from your book that the Maroons were really in control a lot of the time. Um, but and and you talk about different forms of resistance and response to this British colonization. Only one of really was, which was the war, um, and there were several Maroon wars that you call them. So so how how did what happened to lead up to the first. Maroon War, what were the factors that initiated it?
2: Yeah, well, what happened is you had this period of um, establishment, okay, the lands were sold, they were taken over by the British crown, this was not a a casual sort of proprietorship that you would find in the other islands. The British took over the land and they devised the whole system of surveying the land and selling it. It was a state operation. And that took a bit of time because you have to sell the land, then you have to clear the land. So we're talking by the end of the 1760s, early 1770s, you get those plantations um, established. And and then the British um, institute all the systems of control. They pass the legislation against the so called runaway slaves, they bring in their military. They build their fortifications and their signal stations and their coastal batteries. All of that is taking place. But then in 1778, the French, who have always had their eyes on Dominica, attack and take over the island for five years. So there is a stalling, further stalling of the British effect. And when by the Treaty of Versailles in 1783, Britain gets back Dominica they then decide to intensify the control. They decide that they're going, the beginning of the marinage, the effects that were happening before the French attack, um, they're going to be firm about this and, 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 and suppressing it completely. And in doing that, they anger many of the chiefs, particularly one main chief who's controlling the center of the island, and the Maroons basically decide, look, we see this operation beginning and we're going to nip it in the bud. We're going to try to uh, basically prevent the continuation of this, um, this system that the British have instituted. Um, because what they did after the French left is they instituted a, a pattern of legions. They raised the tax so that all professionals and plantation owners would give a special task to raising a military force which would be focused on marinage, on dealing with the Maroons. Because the British Army was not prepared to deal with internal conflict. The British Army and the Navy saw their duty as defending the islands from external enemies. And so the colony had to create its own forces to deal with its internal issues. Um, As the governor of the day in the um, 1780s said, um, I have an internal enemy of a most alarming kind. That was Governor John Ward. And um, so essentially, the first Maroon War was the Maroons getting together and trying to thwart this, Effort that the British ones were making to have this internal force active in suppressing the runaways in the interior
1: of the island. So the the story is now we're leading up to the French Revolution, and you note um, many times in which maroons saw opportunities to exploit divisions among Europeans, and this was often a very successful strategy. And you talk about a lot of sort of battles and counter battles, there are a lot of stories and, and many historical figures which were completely fascinating. And I'm going to encourage readers to, to read the book for all of them. But, but I, want, um, I wonder if you can s- single out a single story or a character that really shaped the way you narrate this complicated period. Was there one, one person, one memorable event that you want us to come away with?
2: Well, there is one memorable individual who um, I'll I'll go and deal with right now in a moment, but I just want to establish for people who have not yet read the book. The location of Dominica between the important French colonies of Martinique and Guadeloupe was one of the most serious reasons for conflict between the British and the French. You had these three islands in a row. The French wanted Dominica so that they would have Martinique, Guadeloupe, and Dominica all together to break the British control in the north and in the south, the islands to the north, the islands to the south, for strategic purposes. Conversely, the British wanted Dominica because it put a wedge between Martinique and Guadeloupe. So you had this conflict. But ironically now... (laughs) The British, when they took over, met a lot of these French settlers already in Dominica. And rather than expel them, they made an accommodation with them and they needed the tax, they needed the export um, taxes and and, uh, all these things to be able to get the colony going. So they basically allowed the French to remain. And therefore, there's this tension between the French and the British and even a certain a splitting of loyalty and unity between the enslaved because you had one group of enslaved who were enslaved by the French and they felt a certain identity with the French and others with the English. So you have this tension as well. There's a fascinating um, engraving by Agostino uh, Burnias, which forms the cover of the book that's published by Mississippi University, Mississippi Press. Of a cultural match between the English and French Maroons. So you, you have these discordant things there. But there was, and, and the other thing to remember is the majority of, of white uh, settlers in Dominica of color were actually of French origin. The administration and the military force were English, British, Scottish, Irish people. But essentially, um, the French. Uh, as a body, they were more numerous. So <laughs> within the island, you had this complexity of Europeanism. And then what was happening at the end of the 1780s and certainly by 1790, 1791, with the outbreak of the French Revolution, you had the mo- what was happening in Haiti, happening in Dominica and the neighboring French-influenced islands, because you had the so-called mulatto free people of color, the free people of color who themselves owned slaves, they owned land, they were educated, and they felt that they should have some participation in the administration, the government. They should have greater freedoms, And they were highly influenced by the philosophy that was coming out of God. Um, they, um, you know equality and fraternity and all of this that was coming out from the French Republic that was emerging as the French Revolution gained power and strength not only in France itself but outside in its colonies. And as the emergence of the revolution touched Haiti, the influence of what was happening in Haiti was filtering down the island and took big root in Dominica. And there was one individual a free man of color called Jean Louis Pauline. And Pauline decided that Dominica would be a right place to create a, a black republic, if you wish, uh, on the lines of what was happening in Haiti. And so he came across from Martinique and began to um, attempt to influence the enslaved. But also the Maroon leaders, particularly those along the rugged eastern coast. And his idea was that you would foment a revolution along the east coast and unite that corner of the island, and then you would go down onto the British controlled west coast and the capital of Roseau. And you would overthrow the entire island and you would then formulate a new government. Um, this was his dream, this was his ideal, um, and I have a couple of chapters there, basically dealing with, with his attempt, particularly one which is called the New Year's, um, New Year's Day Report, when he tried to um, uh, kind of foment this and have it in action, breaking out the um, New Year's of 1791 the New Year's Day of 1791. So that, that gives you, I hope I clarified this enough. Absolutely. The complexity <laughs> of the situation, but the fact that this individual, rather like what was happening in Haiti among the free people of color, was also influenced and happening in Dominic. Uh, what happened to him was that he was betrayed and he was captured and uh, had one of the most terrible executions in the whole history of, of the conflict. Um, in March of 1791, he was hung, drawn, and quartered on a special stage, a special platform in uh, in the town of Rosso, basically to warn the free people of color, of whom there were many in Dominica, that it was not only a matter of black enslaved people in revolt, but worse still, free people of color who were going to encourage the African slaves to revolt as part of a bigger picture.
1: So he he is a perfect person to to take away from the book, in part because of his ideals and his aspirations, but also because of the story you tell of his very. Um, horrific and tragic ending. And towards the end of the book, you talk more about the Maroon War, and, and the whole thing takes up takes on a more tragic cast. I think, do, doesn't yes,
2: it? Yes, it does. Because you do have a lull. I mean, this was a and the many many of the enslaved who were implicated in that revolt of 1791, they were executed. And their bodies were, well, um, their heads were cut off from their bodies. Their bodies were displayed, and their heads were displayed on the, along the the walkways, the highways, the um, paths, zigzagging through Dominica as a warning. And then you had a bit of a lull. But by the end of that century, by the end of the 18th century, um, and the, remember the mutinies. Um, is when we have the um, full climax of the Haitian Revolution and the um, overthrow of the French and the establishment of the Republic. And this, in a way, was being mirrored um, by what was happening in Dominica. Um, the ships, the sailing ships, were going back and forth all over the, through the Caribbean. You had all these um, taverns and tickling houses, as they call them, and bars where the sailors were passing on this information, the information was feeding itself from the town into the plantations, into the camps of the maroons in the hills. So you have this major influence from Haiti um, and elsewhere in the Caribbean coming down. And so they attempted at the first years of the 19th century to try to make another surge At overthrowing the British powers. Um, And essentially, that is what I call the Second Maroon War, uh, where you had this uh, major conflict between the British forces under a governor, Governor Ainsley, who was determined to crush once and for all uh, the. Maroon presence in Dominica. He was very ruthless indeed. He had already created a crisis in Grenada where he limited the freedom of the so-called free people of color and came into great conflict there in Grenada. He came up to Dominica and his resolve was to get rid of the Maroons by any means possible. So Governor George Ainsley, he was uh, determined... So have the distinction of eradicating these Maroons once and for all. Um, he had a tough time of it as he uh, first took over office, and he attempted to create, to have amnesties with the Maroon chiefs, but um, relations have broken down to such an extent that um, the Maroon chiefs, uh, mainly Noel and Kwashi, they actually murdered his the people who came to try to offer um, the governor's amnesty. Uh, this showed their determination. They were not going to relate really to him um, at all. And um, essentially, what happened is that he then raised up his forces. Uh, among them were uh, the West Indies regiments, the Black West Indies regiments. Now, this is a whole story by itself as well where the British were losing so many of their white soldiers from England that they decided in the 1790s to create this force of the West Indies Regiments. These were uh, uh, soldier enslaved black soldiers. The British Army sent agents to the West Coast of Africa to buy young men at 70 pounds per man to bring across to the Caribbean to train as soldiers and to help with the uh, defense and security of the various colonies. It was a most peculiar arrangement, but to a large extent it worked because they gave distinction to the new African arrivals and uh, they created a division between the enslaved on the plantations and the new uniformed African soldiers and Ainsley used these soldiers, as well as the so-called trusted Negroes from the plantation, who also would gain status and um, rewards uh, for their attacks on the Maroons. So this was his force. You had um, British forces, uh, some regiments, but also mainly the Black forces, the West Indies regiment, and the slave legionaries, went into the forest and and attempted to attack. Now, what um, happened as well is that uh, when the um, chiefs were refusing his amnesty and killing his couriers, he then issued a reward for Chief Kwashi, who was at the time the main chief. And uh, Kwashi turned around and uh, issued a reward for the governor's head um, basically, challenging the governor uh, for for attempting to to corner him, um, and as the, the forces then made their way into the forest and made their forays against certain camps, what happened was there was uh, in the end of the hurricane season of 1813, two major hurricanes, one after the other, and these devastated the landscape, stripped the forest any of the pictures that people see of the current hurricane damage of, for instance, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria in 2017, or this year, Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas even, the force and power of these things reduced the camps and uh, destroyed the defense systems that the Maroons had established and essentially made them, put them at the mercy of the forces uh, with forests stripped if their accommodation and their huts are destroyed, it was easy to round them up. And some 500 and more were rounded up and Ainsley then created this um, uh, state of emergency, more or less, under which all the regulated um, methods of justice were swept aside. And essentially a kangaroo court was established to try the ringleaders um, in the forest. And many of them were condemned to death. He established in the marketplace, in this uh, a, a temporary court overlooking the marketplace, he established the cases of execution within the marketplace. And almost as soon as the sentences were handed down, the executions took place less than 50 yards away from where the court was. Uh, and so it was a real brutal um, uh, State of affairs, so much so that the abolitionists and the um, uh, people moving for slave amelioration in Britain demanded that the British government recall easily. Um, and although he was not totally fired, he was, um, his basically position was reduced and he was sent uh, to a small uh, outpost in Canada um, for the rest of his term. Um and uh the essentially the force of the Maroons were broken. Many of their respective leaders had been killed or were dead uh, by various uh, whether it was hurricane or execution, and the amelioration laws in the eighteen twenties were coming into play, and it was clear that by the eighteen thirties emancipation was on its way. And so Essentially, at that time, the power and the force of the maroon camps, and the maroon leaders, was broken in the early uh, 19th century. So that's the story with
1: such dramatic and kind of stunning turns. Um, That seems to end there. And I have just one last question before I let you go, which is, that you actually take the, the, the final moments of the book to extend this story into the twenty-first century and you suggest that really to understand what's at stake in struggles over things like globalization, development, economic dependence, etc., we need to begin with the Maroons and we need to understand that story before we even start to, to, to think about the twenty-first century. Can you
2: can you tell us talk us through that? Oh, yes. Um, Essentially, that's my thesis. That the the power and the strength of the Maroons, dating from the 17th century, coming right through, particularly in the 18th and early 90s, had such a powerful influence on Dominica that it overflowed particularly into the um, 1970s, the independence era, the rise of the Rastafarian movement, which was highly influenced by what had been going on in Jamaica and the presence of Rastafarian philosophy, of going back to the land, of being independent of European control. All of these issues were fed by the presence um, of the Maroons of the past. And in fact, within the last few weeks, we are facing now, on the 6th of December, a general election in Dominica. And opposition forces are using... The whole memory of the maroon, of Bala, of Jacko, of Kwashi, of Kongore, they're using the names of these chiefs um, in their basic na- narrative of resistance to the present government. And interestingly enough, in 2013, a statue was unveiled in the middle of the uh, capital of Roseau. Um, of uh, the Maroon, it's called the Negma Emancipation Statue. And this has, within the last few years, becoming a center of rallying, a rallying point. They're calling it Patriot Square. It's just kind of emerged. Um, and we've seen that past, the Maroon past, now catapulting itself into the 21st century to basically argue a new direction. and and a questioning of what is really development. Is development trying to make ourselves like a suburb of Miami, and therefore to make it that way, do we sell out um, to uh, international financiers and lose our island? That's the question on one side. And the question on the other side is, do we follow the patterns and the philosophy and inspiration of the Maroons and of the Rastafarian movement, and create a simpler, um, more stable society that is linked to the land and to our own resources. Small-scale tourism, instead of massive, massive cruise ships and and huge uh, resorts, uh, and, uh, tourism that we control and that people can engage with. That visitors coming can engage and participate and learn and go on hikes and forest trails. This. This, this is now in place as we speak, this whole question of what really is development in these post-colonial times when there are forces afoot in the international community to control these little islands once again um, with a, you know, a very intense type of um, control that is even linked to the selling of nationality, the selling of passports to gain the nationality of the islands, to then be able to control them by international forces. So it, It's a story that basically continues.
1: It seems to. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you today.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity.